0: Sunday School for Heathens.
1: The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who gets patted down in airport security because of my cross necklace. Oh yeah? Yeah, every time. It's like it's a very half-hearted pat down. It's like they like swipe at my chest. Sure. And <laughs> I continue on my way.
0: Fair. No, that's weird because I like wear my watch through airport security and don't get patted down sometimes.
1: Interesting. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I always take off my watch. I pull my necklace outside of my shirt and like tell them I'm wearing this necklace and they're like, yeah, and they pat me down.
0: Sure. <laughs> is it when you have to do the little like air blowy one when you like put your hands above your head? That's when it goes off? Air blowy one? Yeah. You know, when you like go through it and instead of you go through the metal detector, you like have to put your hands above your head and the little thing spins around you. Right, but
1: what, what is... What it is like, the literally, air? there's
0: like a puff of air that comes up when you do it.
1: I've never felt this puff of air.
0: Really? I totally do. Okay. But yeah, but is it that one that yeah, is the one that one. goes off it, your necklace? Yeah, me- metal detector
1: doesn't go off. It's not no. enough metal for that.
0: Yeah. It pings as a shape that is not your body.
1: Yeah. And I, I know they have different settings. It was in the news recently for men versus women on those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if like there's a higher jewelry tolerance in the women's one.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wonder if because it's two layers also, if there's something like... I don't know. Jingly about it that
1: makes it. Uh, my cross is like a cross part, and then there's like an outline of a cross that like fits around it. It's very and cool. they're two separate pieces. It's very cool. Trying to describe things in this audio-only format.
0: Yep. We've gotten reasonably good at it. No, we
1: just haven't had any anything that's come up. <laughs>
0: Not since sign of the Cross, which was just me making hand shapes into a microphone for a really long time.
1: And if you've gotten to this point, I mean, do you... Continued to listen to us after that. So cool.
0: Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, well, I actually know what we're talking about this week because this is part two of a two part series.
1: That is true. We are finishing up talking about Song of Solomon or Song of Songs or Canticle of Canticles, whatever you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it.
0: But I'm excited because last week was real sexy.
1: This week is going to be less sexy and more academic. It's the opposite of like movies where there's the buttoned up person, and then they take off their glasses and let down their hair, and they're sexy. We're putting up the hair and putting on the glasses.
0: Okay. I'm gonna try and make it <laughs> sexy still.
1: <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed that stupid metaphor. That was uh,
0: a ridiculous way to describe this, and I really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, first off, why? Why is this here?
0: <laughs> sure, yeah, that's a good question. Why is this here?
1: A big part of it is because it had. Solomon's name attached to it, and he's important.
0: Sure. So that means that it had Solomon's name attached to it before the Bible, as we know it, was assembled.
1: Yeah. It wasn't well, like... For sure.
0: Like, you know it would be cool? If we added all these poems, how do we justify this? Well, we could add somebody cool's name attached to it.
1: If it wasn't originally included in there, which people are divided on, it was added pretty early. Okay. And it was regarded as important in Jewish scriptures because it was an allegory of love between God and Israel. Sure. So, cool.
0: That's a metaphor.
1: Yeah. I that's mean, a metaphor it could be. And that's uh, that's easier to justify than, like, this is just cool, sexy poetry. Sure. And
0: We're not reading a lot of other books right now, and so we want to make sure there's something really enjoyable in the book we are reading.
1: I don't know. I, maybe. Maybe somebody was thinking that. They
0: were pretty adamant,
1: like, this is not sexy. This is about God.
0: It's so sexy, though. <laughs> it ab- it could be about God, but it's also so sexy.
1: <laughs> Very early Christian believed. Allegorical. But instead of Between God and Israel, a love story between Jesus and his bride, the church.
0: Okay, sure.
1: Which, that's a pretty common image, the the church as feminine and as the bride of Christ.
0: Hmm. I don't know if I've ever heard that. I just am now trying to think about all of these, like, sexy things that the bride, that the woman in the Song of Solomon says. But, like...
1: A building saying?
0: (laughs) Being about a building. (laughs) Um, It's it's also, it's not
1: a building. It's, It's the church...
0: As a whole yes. thing. The, the, the greater church yeah. as a concept. But still, I guess I just have a hard time imagining any... But like, I guess I think of the church personified in a way that does not have nearly as many sexy feelings as the character in Song of Solomon has. Uh, I don't know.
1: The, the church wants to get down, I guess.
0: If the church is in fact this, other, this half of Song of Solomon, the church totally wants to get down. <laughs> Let's be very clear. <laughs>
1: Uh, she's she's here for for a, a good time and a long time. Yeah. The, the church.
0: <laughs> that's a shirt. That's a shirt. The church. Here for a good time and a long time. And then we'll put the Sunday School Reheathens logo on the back.
1: Perfect. <laughs> so this view of church as bride, and that's the, the couple in this story, mm. first evidence for it is from a theologian named Hippolytus of Rome around the beginning of the 3rd century. So, pretty early. Mm-hmm. I don't know what people were saying before then. Sure. But that, that's kind of the, the earliest writings. Here are a few of the specifics about some of the symbolism that Hippolytus pointed out. He said, The person brought into the king's chambers is said to be those whom Christ had wedded and brought into his church. So, he he kind of breaks it down individual person okay. instead of, like, the whole church. Sure. Um, the breasts are the old and new covenants. Okay. Which I like.
0: Yep, yep. If we're gonna get real specific.
1: <laughs> uh, the hill of frankincense uh, that is mentioned at one point is said to speak of the eminence to which those who crucify fleshly desires are exalted. That's a lot. That was yeah, kind of wordy. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's all, all, all the good things are things that will come to you if you believe in
0: God, I guess. They're like um, virtues and gifts and things. Sure, yeah.
1: And Apollotus might have been the first one to mention this metaphor in writing that we know of, but Origen was really the one who ran with it. Okay. He wrote a ten-volume commentary on Song of Solomon. Um, along with some other um, sermons.
0: That's a lot of volumes. A lot. On yeah. one book of the Bible. Yes. Um, by one guy.
1: That's, we haven't, like, we haven't talked about that, but, like, there are people who, like, their whole thing is, like, a single book of the Bible, and, like, that is what they study.
0: Sure. I mean, there's people who, like, there is one Shakespeare play, and that is what they study, yeah. so I get that. <laughs> I, I knew someone once who wrote an entire college thesis on one line in the Scottish play, so.
1: That's insane, but also kind of makes me think of that little addition in the, the Nicene Creed.
0: Oh, Don't Yeah. There, there we go, the philioque. <laughs> Took mm-hmm.
1: me a second there. But like, yeah, there are people like that is what
0: they... That's what they do. That's what, Yeah. <laughs> and this guy wrote 10 volumes on yeah, the Song of Solomon.
1: He did. He was influenced by Jewish readings of it and by apologists, but also by Gnosticism and asceticism. So both of those, those last two, they see the body and the physical world as bad. Sure. So in this view, you would pretty clearly not want anything in this book to be about literal sexuality
0: because um, or, bodies are bad yeah cuz yeah
1: and or physical pleasure in general bad okay so obviously it's it's got to be about something else the sure. religious sex
0: yes it can't be the sexy <laughs> sexy is bad cuz it involves bodies exactly
1: there you go you got it
0: i got I figured out I altism.
1: <laughs> and you know who also got it unsurprisingly paul Augustine
0: oh sure that makes more sense <laughs> Paul was the default, words that just come out of my mouth, but uh, Augustine makes more sense because Augustine has feelings about things that are sexy. He
1: he does. (laughs) A very polarizing figure. Him
0: and I disagree wholeheartedly, I think, probably, (laughs) on this. I'm sure we can
1: find something that Augustine has written that you would agree with.
0: Sure, but it's definitely not Song of Solomon.
1: Probably not. (laughs) Because we've mentioned before, he believed that the only purpose of sex was for making babies, and he thought that... That was part of the fall, and you didn't even need sex to make babies before. And, like, that one of the things we were
0: cursed with. Is <laughs> that we, got we have to have sex. Kind of. Rah. <laughs> We've been cursed with it. Ah, uh, bummer. <laughs> Augustine. You poor thing.
1: Um, no, he's fine. He, did, he had lots of writing. <laughs>
0: sure. He was otherwise occupied. Yeah. But what does Augustine say about this book?
1: He's kind of saying the same things, where it's entirely allegorical. This is... Christ and the church, and it's, none of this is meant to be taken literal. Sure. Uh, none of it's about Solomon, either. Entirely...
0: Oh, interesting, that they're just like...
1: Yeah, this is all metaphor, purely. And Jerome agreed with Origen, praised him in his own writings, and 10th century, we have theologian Bernard of Clairvaux, who, another guy really into Song of Solomon. We talked
0: about Bernard de Clairvaux in the uh, Hildegard episode.
1: We did. Yeah, he did come up.
0: Yeah, he was, him and Hildegard... Sent letters and things, and he wrote music, and he probably thinks that Song of Solomon is an allegory. He
1: totally does. <laughs> he, um, I don't, I don't know if it came up when you were, uh, when you were looking into him, but he preached eighty six sermons on the first two chapters of Song of Solomon.
0: No. Although he was our saint that week, I did not know that he was so extensively studied just in the very, very beginning of Song of Solomon.
1: Maybe he just couldn't take it after that.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) The only reason that you would argue that hard that this is an allegory is because you have been overwhelmed by how sexy it is, and it makes you uncomfortable that you're that turned on.
1: There's also, I read somewhere that there were some rabbis who said that no one under uh, 30 should be allowed to read it because it was too sexy.
0: Under 30? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Which I just liked that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Then it becomes like really contraband. We're not allowed to read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because that would imply, especially because it would, that was probably at a point where people were getting married a lot younger than they are mm-hmm. now, which meant that people were probably like married, having sex, and having children before they could read Song of Solomon. Yeah, I
1: don't know. I don't know that that was actually enforced by anyone. <laughs> no, no,
0: but- <laughs> no, 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 no. That's insanity. That is pure insanity.
1: But um, Bernard, his goal in his 86 sermons he preached was to purge the text of any suggestion of carnal lust.
0: So this is like if you say it enough times, it doesn't become words anymore?
1: <laughs> Maybe.
0: He just l- wants to speak about it until it loses all meaning.
1: I mean, that's a lot of sermons. It probably would get rolled real, real fast.
0: Yeah. Um. <laughs> and that's only on the first two chapters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there are lots of chapters. There are a
1: lot of chapters. Even more recent, because this was a very popular idea for a long time, John Wesley, among others, supported the pure allegorical view. Sure. So there were some other people who still believed that the book was allegory, but they interpret it differently. One of these was common in medieval mysticism, and it's the idea of the mystic marriage. Ooh. Yeah, I know it sounds cool.
0: It does. Uh,
1: in this view, the song teaches the mystical marriage as the union of soul with God when the loving awareness of God becomes most transcendent and permanent. Supposedly, as the Christian soul passes through a series of mystical states in comprehending this loving awareness of God eventually culminates in a mystical marriage in which one is dissolved into the love of God and purified of any self-love.
0: I kind of like that. There's something about the idea, of, I don't know. I'm trying to talk this through my own my own rationale here. But I think I am I have a hard time identifying the idea that the sort of female character in the song of Solomon could be an entity mm-hmm. that like has all of these really powerful feelings. For another person, even if that person isn't, one of them is an entity and one of them is Christ. But the idea that, like, you are that person, and you are experiencing these complex things about your relationship with a greater power, actually, I think, feels less crazy to me. That makes sense. I think the personalization of it is what, why it seems, like, it makes sense then why you would put it in the Bible. If it's like, here, we have used art to describe the feelings you are feeling when you are figuring out what your relationship with God is.
1: Sure. That makes sense. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of things in the Bible that are not necessarily directly about you. Um, sure. So I don't, I don't know if that would be a reason not to include it in the Bible, but I definitely get the appeal of wanting to make it more personal. And that definitely is pretty characteristic of mysticism. Sure. It's a more, a yeah. more personal approach. Yes. Especially compared to things that had come previously.
0: I mean, you do know I like my mystics. Well, yeah. one mystic in particular, but... Right. You know. We we're, were pretty aware. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> uh,
1: and then at the end, that kind of sounds a little Buddhist, where it's the... You di- you're dissolved into... Oh, yeah. The, the love of God, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, that's super fascinating. I like this mystical marriage choice.
1: A variant on this is the Eucharistic view, in which the this marriage takes place during when you receive communion.
0: Wow, that's a lot of words for that experience. <laughs> Um, Which I kind of like. I mean,
1: there's a a cool moment between you and the person giving you communion and then the the communion itself, the bread itself.
0: Sure. Given the fact that the only time I've had communion was sitting at this table with you, I think that I maybe have less feelings about the power of the communion process.
1: That's fair. But I
0: believe that other people have more important feelings about it than I do.
1: I also, for anyone who didn't listen to that episode, want to clarify, we didn't do actual communion at this table. It was not a consecrated host. Let's be clear.
0: Ryan does not actually have the power to consecrate things yet.
1: I do not. That will be a while.
0: It's, it's on the list, though.
1: Hopefully it will be a thing, but...
0: <laughs> but we got some time.
1: Yeah. So that's that one. Another allegory is that... The woman in the story was not the church, but instead was Mary. Okay. This mostly comes from the line, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. This is taken to refer to the Immaculate Conception. Okay. Um, do you know the, what the Immaculate Conception is?
0: Yeah, that's the, like, she was a virgin, but she still had a baby thing. It's not. No.
1: That's what, pe- that's what a lot of people think. Okay. Uh, the Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary was born without original sin.
0: Oh, yes. I think we talked about this in the original sin episode, but that was 46 weeks ago. It was a long time. So.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's su- super common uh, misconception that people have.
0: Great. So the idea that she is without blemish sort of implies this without sinness of her. Right.
1: And I think it's pretty apparent this is a particularly Roman Catholic view.
0: Sure. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right.
1: Most Mary-centric things tend to be.
0: I was going to say, there's a lot of Mary happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Everybody should enjoy Mary. Mary's great. Yeah. There's another view that the bride is the state under Solomon's rule. Okay. The idea is that things were so good during Solomon's time, and the writer is looking back from a post-Babylonian exile time to when the kingdom was still peaceful and happy.
0: Sure. But also, like, then why does it need to be in the Bible?
1: That's always going to be a hard question. Why, sure. why does anything need to be in the Bible? Sure, sure. And it was already written and accepted by the time this view came around. Sure. It wasn't like there were a bunch of people sitting around trying to decide what to include in the official canon, and they were coming up with all of these, like, well, what does this book mean?
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: mostly after the fact. Sure. But this one, Solomon's Kingdom, is was actually Martin Luther's preferred reading.
0: Interesting. No. Yeah. Just, like, make it political?
1: I guess. I mean, he did He did do a lot of that.
0: Yep. <laughs> Something tells me Luther also didn't want it to be super sexy anyway.
1: No. Most people have not been into anything but an allegorical reading until, like, the last 200 years or so.
0: Sure. Here's my question. What does Calvin think about the Song of Solomon? And is it in your notes? If it's not, that's fine. Um, I... But I bet he had... Strong, allegorical feelings about the Song of Solomon. I believe he
1: did, and he got into a fight with a guy. Sure. Uh, over it. He, like, kicked him out of the council.
0: For disagreeing <laughs> about the reading of the Song of Solomon? Yes. Oh, man.
1: But, like, I... That's all I have on his views. <laughs> sure. Is that he fought a guy over it.
0: Man, I am fascinated by Calvin, in part because I think he would really hate me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, let's... Bad uses for a time machine.
0: Yeah, bad uses for a time machine. Watch <laughs> Calvin kick someone's butt over <laughs> the song of Solomon. Just
1: go through like famous theologian fistfights. Yeah. Between Calvin and Saint Nicholas.
0: Okay, here's what we do. We get a time machine. <laughs> we abduct a bunch of famous theologians and, and then we the bring theologian them to fight club. and then we do theologian <laughs> fight club. <laughs> this is past bad uses for a time machine. This is amazing uses for a time machine. Uh,
1: this is this is horrible. <laughs> this
0: is perfect uses for a time machine. <laughs>
1: This is where we're going to hell.
0: <laughs> okay. If this is what sends me to hell, I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right, now it's the weirdest allegorical view.
0: Okay, uh, ready.
1: Because you know there's always going to be one. Yeah. This one is according to the 17th century Dutch theologian Johannes Kosius, I think. Dutch is hard. Dutch is real hard.
0: Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of extra vowels in there. Y-
1: yeah, there's... I, who knows? Uh, <laughs> the, he, he said that the song was a prophetical narrative of the transactions and events that are to happen in the church. The divisions of the book correspond to the periods of the history of the church and to the seven trumpets and seven seals of the apocalypse of John. This exposition becomes particularly full and detailed with the Reformation and culminates with the future triumph of Protestantism.
0: Brian just grabbed my face.
1: <laughs> uh, confused and mildly upset. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, this—that's a lot. The thought is that this is just the story of Christianity over time.
0: Whoa, that's a lot.
1: Um, which I don't—I don't know. I, I
0: like, like the idea that they're like, "This is true because it." Called the Reformation Happening.
1: Yeah, which I don't know more specifically how it shows that.
0: Nope. No clue.
1: Because I could have looked into all of these much deeper, but then we'd have an entire podcast on (laughs) Song of Solomon. And we don't need that.
0: You mean just on Song of Solomon as a prophecy? Well, I mean, each each one of these... Could be an episode.
1: Yeah, I could go down a rabbit hole and like... Learn every, exactly, like, what each little piece of symbolism means, but we're not doing that.
0: I don't wish that upon you.
1: have <laughs> <laughs> too much other stuff to do. Exactly. There are pros and cons to all of the different allegorical interpretations. On the plus side, marriage is used symbolically at other points in the Bible. Jesus tells a parable about virgins waiting for a bridegroom. There's a lot of symbolism in the book, so it leads people to search for a deeper meaning. So allegory makes sense. Sure. On the other hand, there's not, really enough obvious interpretation of what this allegory is supposed to be yeah a lot of the time in the Bible the parables and the allegories will have a clearer storyline so you, at least you like kind of get what they're they're going for mm-hmm. also against it is Solomon is not maybe the best person to compare God to sure he had a lot of a lot of wives
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah
1: and like was not yeah he he made some mistakes sure
0: human after all
1: right Another way of reading the song is called the Typical View. Sort of like an allegorical view, but it grounds the allegory in something that actually happened. Called Typical, not because it's, this is the usual view, but it's because Solomon is used as a type for God. okay. So he was a real person, but he also represents God.
0: But this gets us back into that sticky, comparing God to Solomon is maybe not the best choice place, right?
1: Right. But I mean, he was also respected. It's complicated. Yeah. So... And, you know, people said bad things about God at different points. Sure, grumbled.
0: Um, Yes. (laughs) And then later they were called heretics.
1: Well, I'm talking about even in the Bible, people are like, well, why is God abandoning us?
0: Well, yeah. Remember uh, Moses on top of a mountain?
1: Right, yeah. In between all of that interior decorating advice.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So Solomon uses a type for God. There are other points where Solomon's life is compared to Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to solomon's wisdom and now something greater than solomon is here so there you go using solomon as a jumping off point yeah but in the story it's not really the same way that solomon is used as a type in that gospel mhm so it's a little different that is a reading that people have sure but in the last 200 years or so People have gotten more into trying to impose a plot on Mm -hmm. the story. Because these others, it was just like kind of like hand wavy allegory. Yeah. Now this is like, this is a play meant to be performed. Sure. But the problem is, it's very unclear what the play is about or how many characters are in it. Sure. Uh, We
0: know that there are at least two plus a girl gang.
1: Yeah. One of the readings of this is the three character hypothesis says that the three characters are the woman, mm-hmm. her husband, who is a shepherd. Yes. And then the king. Great. Um, so there are two two men.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's a little love triangle. This was proposed by the 19th century German theologian Heinrich Ewald. It's that tricky thing that I am don't speak German, so I'm bad at W's.
0: Sure. <laughs> yes. But
1: I'm going to try this. Great. Ewald said that the maiden was in love with her shepherd companion, and the tension in the book stems from Solomon's attempt to take her for himself.
0: Okay. That seems more like the Solomon we know.
1: That would make sense. And also, it's kind of a way to analyze this, like, he's a shepherd, but also we are talking about as a king, so maybe they're two different guys. Sure. He suggested that the king carried off the maiden by force to his harem, and she resisted his advances, and he permitted her to return to a rustic lover. Aww. The woman is the hero of the story, and she's supposed to be celebrated for remaining true to her husband. Great. That's the idea up here. There's people who are skeptical. They're like, yeah, there's really not a good way to tell which man is talking. That's true. <laughs> they kind of sound the same. Also, one person said, well, Solomon could be a shepherd. He owned lots of flocks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, sure, in the broadest sense of the word. Yeah, I guess
1: Technically. <laughs> The other reading is the the two-character hypothesis. This comes from Franz Die Lisch. Lisch, More German. Sure, I don't know. German Lutheran theologian, mid-19th century. He said that the story was a six-act drama, each act having two scenes.
0: Okay. Specific here. Yeah.
1: Which actually kind of works if you look at the structure, but... Okay. In his drama, Solomon took the woman to his harem in Jerusalem, where he was purified in his affection... From a sensual lust to a pure love.
0: Ah. So he, like, takes this woman into his harem, and then he actually falls in love with her and decides that this is what he wants to do with his life. Basically. Interesting.
1: That's the plot of this one. This fits in very well with the typical view. He combines it into his reading. But some people think this is weird, that he adds in the typical view of Solomon as God, because Mm -hmm. Solomon learned how to love from the woman. But if you're saying that Solomon is God, God learns how to love from us?
0: Sure. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Franz. France? (laughs) <laughs> Franz! <laughs> Get it together, Franz.
1: Also people are like, but there's no stage directions or notation of scenes. Where are you getting these scenes from? Sure. <laughs> so getting creative there.
0: Yeah, clearly.
1: This one I think you'll think is pretty interesting. In 1906, Wilhelm Erbt, another German theologian. Yeah, Germany was a hotbed for this interpretation. Clearly, he said that it was actually a Canaanite pagan fertility story. Interesting. Uh, he said that these poems described the love of the sun god, Tamuzand, and the moon goddess Ishtar. Right. And the sexual union of the goddess and her once lost lover was seen as restoring fertility and well-being to the land.
0: There we go. Yeah.
1: According to this theory, it was adopted by the Israelites who were living near the Canaanites and adapted to be less obviously not about their own
0: god. Sure. Just take it and run with it. Yeah.
1: You know, even within the Hebrew Bible, there is evidence of culture mixing. I mean, it's not seen as good in parts, other parts it's just yeah. kind of accepted. Mm-hmm. Culture mixing was totally happening. Great. So that's reasonable. The criticism is if this is a Canaanite story, why would you include it? Sure. I don't know, maybe it just people forgot that it wasn't theirs. Also, it's pretty. It is pretty. There is, yeah, there's definitely an argument for just, we'll keep this around because it's nice. Yeah. And we like to sing it. Sure. Or say it, or however it was communicated. Yep. Then there's the literal view, The idea that this is just erotic poetry. Yes. This has also been around for a long time. Sure. Which makes sense because that's kind of the most basic way to read it. Is yeah.
0: It's just evidence. sexy.
1: Yeah, this is just what it is. The earliest evidence that I was able to find of this is Theodore of... Mopsus, not Mopsusia. He suggested it in the fourth century, but he was condemned as a heretic at the Second Council of Constantinople in the sixth century.
0: For his feelings on Song of Solomon, or for other things?
1: This, in particular. Okay. I know they condemned this view as heretical. I don't know if they condemned him more broadly. Sure. So that pretty much killed this view of that would do it until the eighteenth century. All right. And then we, we start to wonder, well, maybe it is poetry. Yeah. Uh, and it was first brought back to popularity by Moses Mendelssohn. A german-
0: like the composer? I don't know. I mean, there's a composer called Mendelssohn. I don't know if his first name is Moses.
1: I mean, he's a german Jewish philosopher. I don't know. He might have also been a composer. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I do not know for sure. I would guess no.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Someone's screaming at their phone right now.
1: If someone's going to be mad at us. It's fine.
0: Tweeted us. Come on.
1: <laughs> brought back by this philosopher who may or may not have also written music unfair. sure and it's gained popularity since cool basically the view that most people hold now is that the song shows a good example of love in a christian marriage sure though within that there's a lot of variation if you look up summaries of what it's about literally every summary will be different sure because people are still trying to whether or not they see it as a, a drama, strictly, mm-hmm. people want to impose an order on it. They want, yeah. want it to be a plot. Yes, for sure. Every time I looked it up, there's a different plot summary. Mm-hmm. One I read uh, said showed the man as the hero instead of the woman. Weird. That one in particular said that when the woman was in bed and the man came to her door, she was doing him wrong by denying her husband sex, but afterwards realized that she had done wrong and went to find him, but then that was why, when she was punished by the guards. Okay. I do not agree with that reading, to be clear. Um, I don't think not wanting to get out of bed and put on your shoes because your husband wants to have sex with you, I, I don't think that's a sin.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, correct. Uh,
1: but that was a weird a weird reading that I found. Seriously, look them up. I should have had you do that before this episode. Yeah. Look at plot summaries because they're all over the place.
0: Yeah, I might have to do that just for fun now.
1: Yeah. Um, and you can update folks. Yeah. <laughs> Those are basically some of the different types of readings of this book that there has been so much mystery around because it's so weird.
0: Yeah, basically, it's just so weird. Yeah, that's what I've got. Great. Well, then let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back.
1: And now it is time for the patronage Pop Quiz where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of.
0: All right, who do we have this week, Brian? This week, we have Mercurius the Younger. The Younger? Yes. Oh, boy. There is, there is a Mercurius the Elder. Oh, boy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> who is what? <laughs> well, you know, there's two. They hung out together for a while. Sure, but they're not like father-son? I don't believe so, no. It's not like
0: mean. a junior-senior thing?
1: No, it's more like uh, when I was in Catholic school, and out of my 30-kid class... Six of them were Michael's, so they were like Michael R and Michael S.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, that makes more sense.
1: (laughs) So, Marcarius was born in the 4th century in Alexandria, Egypt. He was a very successful merchant, selling fruit candy and pastries. But after he converted to Christianity, he decided to give up his wealth and his business and become a monk and a hermit.
0: Sure. Did he live in a cave?
1: He lived in the desert. Okay. Maybe in a cave? Sure. No cave was specifically okay. mentioned.
0: I just know sometimes we end up with caves.
1: Yeah. But he he did go out to live as a hermit. Okay. He moved to Thebaid in Upper Egypt, and he lived near and became friends with St. Anthony the Abbot. While living as a hermit, he became known as a poet, healer, and a friend to wild animals. He was exiled to an island in the Nile, along with a group of other monks, including St. Marcarius the Elder. Great. (laughs) This group was sent there to this island by Arians who were in charge of the area, and it was because they would not give up their non-Arian views.
0: Sure. So yes, it was a political exile.
1: Right. It was heresy. It all comes down to heresy. Eventually, they were allowed to return from exile, and Marcarius traveled to Lower Egypt to be ordained, and he lived in a desert cell in community with other monks. All right. He was famous for his practice of severe austerities. Oh, boy. Which is always where it gets fun. Yep. I can't (laughs) wait. He lived for seven years on only raw vegetables dipped in water and a few crumbs of bread. Though, he did allow himself to add a few drops of oil on feast days.
0: Oh, boy. How luxurious. I know.
1: He once spent 20 days and 20 nights without sleep, burnt by the sun in the day, frozen by bitter desert cold at night. He only stopped and returned to his cell because he said his mind dried up from lack of sleep and he had a kind of delirium.
0: Yes. 20 days of no sleep would <laughs> drive you insane.
1: So yeah, he <laughs> couldn't even make it a full month.
0: No. He probably, like, beat himself up for it later. <laughs> probably.
1: <laughs> Uh, maybe literally.
0: Maybe um, literally.
1: <laughs> Marcarius decided that he needed to get still further from the world, so he moved to the desert of Nitria. This was an incredibly harsh journey, and when Marcarius was at the end of his strength, the devil appeared to him and asked, Why not ask God for the food and strength to continue your journey? And he answered, The Lord is my strength and glory. Do not tempt a servant of God. The devil then gave him a vision of a camel laden with food, and Mark Carius was about to eat, but he suspected a trap, so he prayed over the camel and it vanished.
0: Great. Because it was, in fact, a trap. It was a trap. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Cue uh,
0: yeah. Bar. Yep. It's a trap. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he spent six months naked in the marshes, beset constantly by vicious, blood sucking flies and mosquitoes. Ew. Uh, in hope of destroying his last bit of sexual desire.
0: Okay. <laughs> Ugh, what a trip. <laughs> Humans are weird
1: <laughs> Yeah, just a little The terrible conditions and attacking insects Left him so deformed That when he returned to the monks They could recognize him only by his voice Ah A young brother once offered Marcarius some very fine grapes Because he had been a fruit dealer in his younger days He appreciated the gift mm-hmm. He was about to enjoy these grapes But then he decided to send them to a brother who was ill And that brother passed the grapes to someone that he thought was more in need. And that one did the same. And on and on the grapes went until they went all the way around and returned to Marcarious. Oh
0: boy. Then did he eat
1: them? I don't know. The story ended there. Maybe he ate the grapes.
0: Maybe they were spoiled by then.
1: Oh, that would be sad. Yep. (laughs) I hope these monks didn't ruin it. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Marcarious eventually got to the point where he felt he had one more vice that he needed to conquer. His love of travel. Oh... So, so he realized this when the devil appeared and suggested that he go to Rome and he chase out the demons there. And he was torn between traveling for such a good cause, but also he wanted to fight his vice. Yep. So he filled a large basket with sand and he put it on his back and set out.
0: Oh, so like if I'm going down to travel, I have to make it as inconvenient and painful as possible?
1: Yep, yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Someone offered to help him when they saw him lugging this basket of sand and he said, leave me alone, I'm punishing my tormentor. He wishes to lead me, old and weak as I am, on a distant and vain voyage. Oh, boy. He eventually returned to his cell, his body broken with fatigue, but he was cured of his temptation. There you go. When he was much older, Mercurius journeyed to a monastery where 1,400 hermits lived under the rigid rule of Saint Pachom- Pachomius. Sure. Pachomius, we'll go with. Mercurius was refused admittance. Comius. Himself told Markerius that you are too old to survive the great rigor we have here. Um, One needs to be trained in it from childhood or else you cannot withstand it. Your health would fail and you would curse us for harming you. Now this was a challenge. Yes. (laughs) That Markerius could not pass up. He stood at the abbey gate for seven days and nights Mm -hmm. without sleep, without food, and without saying a word. Finally, maybe because they thought he would just die out there. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) The monks relented and let him in. Mercarius stood in the corner of the monastery in complete silence for all of Lent, living on a few cabbage leaves every Sunday, more to avoid ostentation than from any real need.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because it would be too ostentatious to not eat cabbage? I guess. It's showy that he can fast. Wild. (laughs) How wild.
1: The monks became so jealous of this new brother that they took their complaint to Comius. Who asked God for illumination, and this is when he learned that this old man was Marcarius. Okay, <laughs> and he went to him and said, "My brother, I thank you for the lesson you have given my sons. It will prevent their boasting about their modest mortifications. You have edified us sufficiently. Return to your own monastery and pray for us each day." Great. Yeah. Knock it off. Get out of here. We get it.
0: We get it. You're cooler than all of us. <laughs> you came here. You showed us up at our own game. Exactly.
1: And so Marcarius did. Return to that monastery at Nitria that was later named after him, and he wrote a constitution for the monastery. Oh. And this constitution was later adopted by Saint Jerome for his own monastery. There you go. And that is the story of Saint Marcarius the Younger. So, Shannon, what is Marcarius the patron saint of?
0: He's gotta be the patron saint of hermits, right?
1: He is not
0: not gonna get it no i'm not i think at this point i'm out of yeses already what's the list it's a very short list
1: the list is confectioners cooks and pastry chefs weird because if you
0: remember all the way back
1: to the beginning of his story Mm -hmm. he sold pastries
0: sure (laughs) wild uh yeah so
1: that one was A great story, but also very mean for this game.
0: (laughs) Yes, but I expect nothing less from you. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you all so much for listening today. Um, A little bit of housekeeping. After this episode, uh, we are going to be going on a bit of a hiatus because Brian has started school.
1: Yeah, y'all, I'm going to be too busy doing reading for an actual thing. I won't have time to do the reading for this.
0: (laughs) I want to believe that the reading for school is going to, like, occasionally inspire Brian into new episodes, but also Brian is doing cool, important things by going back to school. (laughs) So uh, episodes are not going away forever, but they are going to become less consistent. So that means that if you have not subscribed to the show you should subscribe now because that way you will know when there are new episodes right away and you won't have to just like check back periodically to see if we've posted something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Because at least occasionally we will definitely come back and do this. Yeah. Um, It just will not be weekly at least for a while.
0: Yep. And if we decide at some point that that's going to change, we'll keep you guys updated. But in the meantime, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so that you can get episodes whenever they do come out. Also, Just because we're on a little break doesn't mean that you can't write reviews. Please do so. That way other people who haven't listened to all of our other 40-some-odd episodes can go ahead and do that. And keep up with us on social media. We'll occasionally post fun things that we come across in between episodes uh, on our Twitter at School Number 4 Heathens and on our Facebook page at School Number 4 Heathens. You can always send us an email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for his music for the show. Thank you, David Griffin, for the logo and for editing this one last one for you before your schoolwork also gets busy. Man, oh man, I'm surrounded by people getting degrees. Everybody,
1: Everybody going to school.
0: Everybody going to school except me. And make it all of you. Amen.
1: Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod.